Welcome to the Chuck Shoot Podcast, and thank you for checking out my show. We have a very well-established musician today on the show, drummer Steve Riley. Uh, so he's played with many very well-known bands, bands including Steppenwolf, Keel, and Wasp. Uh, of course, he's most well-known for being the drummer of L.A. Guns. Uh, and despite his impressive resume, he's a very down-to-earth guy, very nice, and it was a pleasure to chat with him. We discuss his whole career, plus the new album he's got out with L.A. Guns called Renegades. Uh, also some movie stuff, and I'll get his thoughts on some of the recent stuff in the press that his ex-bandmate Phil said. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy this interview, uh, whether you're a diehard L.A. Guns fan or you thought L.A. Guns was a firearm store. I think you're really going to like this. Check it out. Welcome to the Chuck Shoot Podcast, Steve Riley, drummer of L.A. Guns and uh, some other bands that we'll talk about, too. But let's let's start. I want to go through your whole musical career. You've had quite a career. So if we could start at the beginning, uh, you grew up in Revere, Massachusetts, which uh, I guess Glenn Danzig is also from that town. I don't know if you knew that. And you, you've been all over the world with L.A. Guns and stuff. But tell me about growing up near Boston. It's a funny thing because, you know, I, I grew up in Revere. It's just like right outside of Boston. It's North Boston. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up with, uh, it was a small music community there. One of the guys I grew up with was Frank Domino from Angel. Oh. And, uh, yeah, we both grew up in Revere. We were both in a marching band. He played clarinet. I played snare drum. And uh, he was like the first guy in Revere to break out of that scene and start a, his career, you know. And, uh Growing up in Revere, I kind of knew that once I graduated Revere High School, that I was going to have to kind of move on into whatever city I was going to go to. But I knew the music scene in Boston was kind of a, a small and it was, sure. there wasn't a lot of opportunity. So I knew once I graduated in 73 that I was going to eventually move. And that's what I did. I ended up moving out of Revere with Frank Domino. And we both went down to Washington, D.C., and uh, we were in a band in D.C. together called Max, and hmm. that's where Angel came out of one of those bands. Oh, I didn't even know that part. But so you were inspired uh, musically by Jeff Beck, and you actually got to meet him once. But what about who are your favorite, favorite drummers or drummers that you were inspired by? I started playing drums so young that my dad turned me on to a bunch of jazz guys and I really got hooked on Gene Cooper and Buddy Rich. Oh. I, I just, they were like very, very influential in everything that I did. And uh, Buddy Rich and Gene Cooper are, are like gods to me. And, you know, I started playing when I was about five or six years old. Wow. I, yeah. That's so, young. You know, I've been playing my whole life. And I actually started playing before I had discovered the Beatles with my older sister. And, uh, so rock kind of came after me starting to play drums. And so, you know, Ringo was a big influence and Charlie Watts and Ginger Baker. But that really came after me really being hooked on Gene Cooper and Buddy Rich. Okay. Very cool. So 75-ish or 74, you actually ended up moving to LA, right? And then is that when you worked with Todd Rundgren with a, a band called Roadmaster, which I listened, they have this on Spotify. I listened to some of it. It holds up pretty well. I mean, it sounds like 70s rock, but it's good 70s rock, very melodic. Um, did you think at that time, even being in that band and working with Todd Rundgren, did you feel like you had made it? I mean, you guys were opened up for some pretty big artists. Yeah, you know, I the thing with, uh, with the Roadmaster was 
when I was in DC, there were three bands. There was Max, Cherry People, and Daddy Warbucks. Those three bands formed Angel, and they actually broke up three bands when they formed Angel oh. because key members left each of those bands. When that happened, that was like in about late 74, early 75, I got a call from a band in Indianapolis called Roadmaster, and they were getting ready to do an album. And they asked me to come out. I, my connection was somebody from D.C. had already gone out there, a friend of mine, the guitar player, okay. Ricky Bennett. He had already gone out there and joined Roadmaster. And he called me and said that they were going to let their drummer go, and they were getting ready to record an album. And it was an independent album. It was done with an independent label in Indianapolis. And Todd hmm. Rundgren came in and brought the band out to Bearsville, New York, to do the songs. And we did a couple more songs with a producer in Indianapolis. But Todd did most of the album. And yeah, you know, that was the first album I did, Chuck. And that was a high point in my career. I mean, I thought that, wow, this is it. Yeah. This is I'm on my way right now, you know, and uh, little did I know there was going to be a lot more to come after. Sure, I did. I did the one album with Roadmaster, and I asked them because I knew I needed to end up in Los Angeles. I knew that was my final destination because that's where everything was happening. And Angel had already been out here telling me how good it was with all the machinery, management, record labels, everything. So I had asked the guys in Roadmaster if they were going to relocate now that we have things going because Indianapolis mm -hmm. is kind of like a high place to get things going. Sure. And uh, I did a bunch of shows with Roadmaster in the Midwest and um, we opened up for Rush on the, their big tour. And, uh, you oh. know, so we got a, got a nice date, but they didn't want to relocate. So I ended up leaving Roadmaster and coming to LA to play with Mickey Jones on Angel. And didn't you uh, briefly join a version of Steppenwolf? I did. Once I was out here with Mickey Jones, we had started a band called Empire and tried to get it off the ground. It was very difficult. We just didn't, for some reason, be able to get it off the ground. And during that period, I got a call from Steppenwolf to see if I wanted to go out and tour with them. And it wasn't any recording. It was just they were touring a lot. Mm -hmm. And I was young. I was like 20 years old. And I, I took up I, right away. I said, yes. And I went out with them for a couple of years and I toured with Steppenwolf and did that whole great catalog of material. Oh, that yeah. Had, you know? That's so a that great catalog. It was great touring with them. Yeah, that's cool. So then, and then you did some other bands, the lawyers, the bees. Um, and then this was interesting. This is like one of the reasons that I wanted to interview because I, I had Ron Keel on here a few episodes ago. And, um, and you would, you know, obviously you were in Keel for a little bit and he told me, I, I was asking him, I was like, what is the secret to this guy's success? Because you've been in so many big bands. I mean, most people would have killed just to be in Roadmaster or Wasp or like you're in all these things. And he said, well, you're definitely driven. So that, that was like, and it was interesting. You recorded that first album with Keel, but then you left to join Wasp. Like, how did you know that Wasp would be bigger? Because Keel was a pretty big band too. I mean, you kind of hedged your bet with Wasp. Like in hindsight, I mean, I think you made the right call, but how did you know? Did, were you taking, just taking a chance basically? Yeah, you know, when I did the album with the Bees, I had done a bunch of one-off albums with people, mm -hmm. and for some reason or another, they didn't get going or they didn't go on to a second album. Mm. When I did the album with the Bees, 
Tom Warman produced it. It was another high point because we were on Epic Records, a major label. Again, they didn't take off for one reason. It was a great band, great guys. We had a great situation, but it didn't take off. So when I came, uh, when, I, uh, when I got out of the bees, I started doing like small session work, just anything to work. It could be like a really small session for like a hundred bucks to play with some lawyer that wanted to record a couple oh. of songs, you know? And yeah, because so I was I trying to find a, a record of all the session work you've done. I can't find it. So it was nothing major, but it was enough to pay money. That's all it was. Okay. It was really to pay bills. And what I did was I did that for a couple of years here in L.A. On one of those sessions, Greg Chasen, the bass player who went on to be in Badlands. Mm, he yeah. wasn't in Badlands at the time, but he was just doing that session with me. He told me to call Keel. Mm. And he said, they're getting ready to go into the studio with Gene Simmons. They're on A&M Records. And I called Keel. I asked him if I could come down and play for them. I did play for them, and everything worked out cool. And they wanted me to do the album. And so I ended up doing the album in another great situation. Here I am in the record plant in New York. I mean, in L.A., the old record plant. I'm with Gene Simmons producing A&M Records. The guys in Keel were great. And they were really making noise around L.A. Kill. And so after I finished doing all of my drum tracks, we were doing the background vocals for Kill. And uh, I'm, I'm in the record plant, and I got a call from Blackie from Wasp, and he said, uh, I hear that you came in and you were able to do the Kill album real quick, because it was a quick turnaround. I sure. turned Kill, did two weeks of pre-production, and went right in and recorded with them. Hmm. And so... He said, I heard how that situation went down. Will you come by my apartment and, and give me a talk? So after one of the sessions that, with Gene doing the background vocals for Keel, I went over to Blackie's apartment and he played me Wasp's new album. Now Keel was doing the right to rock while Wasp was doing their first album. And so I went over to Blackie's apartment and he played me the first album. I was blown away. I thought it was great. Hmm. And he told me what kind of machine they had built around them. They had the Iron Maiden management. Hmm. They were on Capitol Records. They had this big world tour already booked. Okay. And he, and he said to me, would, would you be interested in doing this? And it, it was a really hard decision because I knew I had something great going with Keel. Yeah. But what Blackie was describing to me and what they had with Iron Maiden's people, I I had to take it. It was just too good to pass up. And so it was very difficult to tell Ron and the guys in Keel because they were so great to me, and I still am friends with all of them, that I'm going to leave and do this thing with Keel or with Ross. Yeah. And yeah, in hindsight, it, it was the best decision. But the reason was was because I was always looking for a bigger and better situation. And it sounds kind of like, you know, a hard case to, for somebody to say, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do that. But in this business, you have to make that kind of a hard decision. Mm -hmm. And so I did. And I left Kiel and I joined Wasp and I stayed with Wasp for about four, four and a half years. Yeah. So you did three albums with them, two studio and then one live. Um, and this was interesting, though, like looking at the research. Uh, the band was a target of the PMRC, which for people who don't know what that is, it's the Parents Music Resource Center. 
Uh, they called your band Was uh, sexual perverts, and they put you on the filthy fifteen. Like, like I remember this as a kid. Even like censorship was was a big thing in the eighties with music. Like, I feel like there was a lot of like religious people or whatever you call them. They were ta- they would call music. Uh, you know, like sexual perverts or, or Satanism or, you know, all these, they look yeah. for all these themes. I feel like people were looking for that in the eighties. Um, do you feel like, like that's kind of come full circle again, where censorship, maybe not necessarily with the Satan stuff, but a lot of more censorship seems to be popping its head up back with movies and music and social media. And talk about that. What do you, what's well, your thoughts you know, on that? I got to tell you, Chuck, you know, it's the funniest thing. When I look back on that, the whole L.A. out scene was during Reagan and Bush presidencies. Mm-hmm. It, it's so ironic. You would think that a scene like what we had wouldn't be able to thrive in a Reagan-Bush era because mm. of how conservative they are. Sure. But when PMRC came out, they thought they were going to hurt us by putting a label on our records. Mm. It turned out to be just the opposite. <laughs> it helped our seals. Everybody's seals were going through the roof uh. because you know kids are going to want to listen to something their parents don't want them to listen to. So it turned out to be an ironic situation. The seals went through the roof. Everybody was doing great. Mm-hmm. And I do agree with you that today the conservative look on everything entertainment is really the thumbprint is everywhere right now. And it, it is very difficult to get anything like what we were doing, especially Wasp. I don't know if Wasp could thrive today because of how over the top it was. I mean, we had a girl on the rack and we were cutting her throat and we were throwing meat out at the audience and we had, Tormentor songs and F like a beast. And yeah. we were like, you know, I mean, I don't know if that could go over today because of the way the uh, censorship is, is thriving right now. And, and it's really got yeah. people are scared to do that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, the, 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 you know, the, the feminist movement has really, I mean, they've really cracked down on a lot of those things as inappropriate, oh, yeah. maybe some of it, obviously rightfully so, but I mean, I feel like in, in that case, it was more for entertainment, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting discussion, at least. It was definitely for entertainment, but I can't see the Me Too movement accepting a girl on a rack being cut up. And no. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. And she's half dressed. Yeah. I mean, I would not go over to that. No, 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 no. You could, if it was a white male, you could, you could do whatever you want to it, but no, a girl, I, I would not, oh, I wouldn't mess with that. That's, that's a gamble. So yeah, you got, but you look back on your time in Wasp and you say the only regret is that you had that it, you wish it had lasted longer. You wish that they hadn't disbanded because you guys thought, or you thought you had something special and you wish that that lineup had stayed together for another album or two, right? Oh, totally. And I think that the original lineup of me, Blackie, Chris Holmes and Randy Piper, I thought not only were we theatrically great on stage and we had a great stage show, but sonically and song-wise, we were really, really good. And Mm -hmm. we were really making the headliners work hard to follow us. I mean, we got crowds going crazy and we were doing really well. And Blackie 
for some reason, slowly broke the band up. He mm. fired Randy Piper, which changed the dynamics of the band completely mm-hmm. because he went from bass to, to guitar with Blackie. And that changed the dynamics immensely. And so then we did an album with Johnny Rod, and I liked the way Electric Circus came out, but I thought that the band had a lot longer legs with the original lineup. I just wish the original lineup could have stayed together longer, like Motley did, you know? Motley played it great, and they stayed together, whether they had beefs or not, they stayed together, they knew they had a great band with great songs, and they made the right call. And I just wish Wash had done the same thing. Yeah, well... I mean, again, you, you kept going, though. You persevered. And this is, a, I think a lot of people might, you know, people who are maybe casual rock fans or even casual L.A. Guns fans may not know the story of L.A. Guns, how it was L.A. Guns and there was a band called Hollywood Rose. And when they combined the two bands, that's how they came up with Guns N' Roses. But um, I think before you joined the band, there was a short time where uh, I think was Axl Rose. He was the singer of L.A. Guns, right? Or was it Tracy yeah, Guns? the singer? Because, you know, Chuck, I, I, I told this in some other interviews that I was fortunate to be, the, the L.A. scene lasted from 82 to 92, mm-hmm. probably longer than any city has ever had a thriving sure. scene. Sure, yeah. Straight through. Usually it's about a five-year period, and then that city's main thing kind of breaks down. L.A. went for 10 years. I was really fortunate. I was involved with this first wave of metal with Wasp, Motley, uh, Dawkins, Rat, Great White, all of these bands, I was involved with that. We were all so busy touring and recording that we didn't realize in 86, late, early 87, we didn't realize a second wave of rock was coming out of LA. And that was with Guns N' Roses, mm. LA Guns, Faster Pussycat, Jet Boy, we didn't realize that this was happening because we were all so busy and we weren't really in the city a long time to see this happening. Sure. We we're always on the road. So I got to be involved with both waves of the LA scene. What I don't really know, I even after being in LA Guns for so long, is that early, early history. I know Axel was involved. I know they got the name. Guns N' Roses, how they got the name, mm-hmm. and they melded two bands together. But I think they were all really short periods of time where all of these guys were involved with each other. Yeah. And then in, in early 87, the classic lineup of L.A. Guns really started this whole scene with L.A. Guns. And I really know from that point on, the early scene, I'm not quite sure. I just know... Axel was involved with yeah. it for a little bit. They were all and, mixed. Yeah. Yeah. It was Do you such think a that people that must have helped the band get signed, right? The whole Guns N' Roses connection. Yeah, but you know what? I it, I really believe that it boils down to the songs. When I got out of LA, when I got out of Wasp, I was living still in a, in a nice apartment in Hollywood, but I didn't have a place to play drums. And I went down to SIR Studios rented a small room just to stay loose on my drums because I knew I was going to do something. I didn't mm-hmm. know what, quite what I was going to do. And when I was at SIR Studios, these guys from LA Guns, they were big fans of Wasp. They came in and they said hi to me and they could hear me playing. And they said they handed me a tape with all scribbling on it. It was their first album that they had just recorded and it wasn't even pressed yet. 
when I listened to it, they said, listen to it and see if you're interested in joining because we're going to let our drama go. Mm. And uh, it boils down to the songs, Chuck. When I listened to LA Gun's first album, I heard great songs. Mm -hmm. And so I know that maybe the connection was all there. But remember, G and I also hadn't taken off That's yet. True, they had yeah. just recorded yeah. their first album. They were still doing clubs here in LA. So the connection might have been there, but I really believe it came down to both bands having really good songs. Absolutely. Yeah. You know? So during that time up until 91, I mean, that was those first few albums were the peak of popularity for the band. A lot of success. You had good record sales, tours, videos on MTV, the whole thing. When you look back on that time, are those like some of your happiest years of your life? Or is there a lot of stress going on behind the scenes that we didn't see? I think that it was some of the happiest times of my life because I, you know, I always feel fortunate. I know that you have to have talent to get going in this business, but you really have to have timing and luck on your side. And that timing is so important. So when I got out of Wasp, I knew I was going to do something, but I didn't know what I was going to do. So to be able to join something like LA Guns from the very beginning and watch it take off and get more and more popular. And we were all over MTV. We had songs all over the radio. We were doing great. Mm -hmm. Obviously, he and I was huge. Yeah, like yeah. Van Halen, they were just gigantic. But we also had a really good run with gold and platinum albums. And we were all over MTV and the radio. And we were touring the world. And I just thought I was so fortunate. I was with a bunch of guys that were really into it. And it was a really happy time from 87 all the way up to 92. It was just a great period. Yeah. So 92, um, you left the band. What, not from You rejoined in 94. But from 92 to 94, what did you do for that time? Were you doing session work and stuff? or? Yeah, I did the same thing. Uh, you know, I had a falling out with Phil Lewis. But the falling out with Phil Lewis was coupled with Tracy not really wanting to continue on with the band. He wanted to do his new band called Killing Machine, and he wanted to do mm. something different. Okay. So the band really splinted at the same time. Even though Vicious Circle was done, everybody flew their parts in. Nobody was really in the studio at mm. the same time. It was a very uh, chaotic period for LA Guns, and the band was splintering. Okay. From what I did in 92 to 94, I had recorded probably like about three or four albums with people that were either looking for a record deal or going to get a record deal mm. and it didn't happen. Okay. I, I went through that before earlier in the eighties and um, I had done so much session work in that period, again, to pay the bills and to stay active. And uh, it was a kind of a fun period, but hmm. you know, it was kind of chaotic too because I was all over the place. Yeah. So none of those, uh, Albums that you recorded during Saw the Light of Day or went or got major label success or anything? No. But you I, got paid, I, right? I, yeah, I got a number of them. And uh, and and I, I have them all on uh, my computer and I revisit them once wow. in a while. Some of them were really good and you can't understand why they didn't get signed. But again, you know, grunge was laying down big and heavy at that point. So, you know, anything that wasn't in that mold, too, was very difficult to get signed. So I understand. But I had done so much recording during that period that 
never made the light of day, but I have it still, you know. Do you did you cross paths with with anyone that would later go on to do something big or I uh, you know what? Not really. I mean, I the, the people that I played with are the people that really took off and made it. And uh, mm. the people that I tried to do stuff with or I sat in on their sessions and helped them record some material, it just didn't get up a ground. I mean, mm. uh, Jimmy, the keyboard player from Blondie, he recorded this whole album here in L.A. and I played the drums on it. He produced it and it was with this English guy and... Uh, the whole album was done. The uh, the singer, uh, there was a bunch of people that guest starred on it. Hmm. I figured this thing would really take off and get signed, and it didn't. So wow. you know, you never know in this hmm. business. It's, it's difficult. Yeah, that's crazy. So then you end up uh, reuniting with LA Guns, and you guys did. I mean, there was a bunch of different uh, versions of the band and different lineup changes, but you stayed with them until about 2016, um, and then this is where it gets kind of hazy or messy because. You guys kind of split off, uh, so there's two versions of the band, I guess you'd call it. Now, how does that work, like, with the website and the social media? How do you guys divide that kind of thing up? Well, you know, when Tracy decided to quit, when the original lineup, the classic lineup broke up, it, it, the three guys, Phil, Mick Cripps, and Kelly Nichols, they all left the band in late 95, early 96. Mm -hmm. That's when Tracy and I decided to stay together. We were partners. We wanted to keep moving on with LA Guns. And we did. We did three albums with three different singers, with Jizzy Pearl, Michael Starr from... Uh, Steel Panther. Yeah, Steel yeah. Panther. And we did one with Chris Van Dahl. Yeah. He's really yeah, good, too. American Hardcore. And so uh, we did. me and Tracy continued on and then we eventually talked Phil into coming back in to do uh, a couple, an album with us. And Man on the Moon, I think, right? Man on the Moon. Yeah. Yes. And he came back to do Man on the Moon. And actually, we got him back in to do Black Beauties, the greatest hits, because oh, we yeah. wrote five new songs for that. And then we did Man on the Moon. So it was me, Phil, and Tracy continuing on from 2000 until about 2002. And in 2002... Tracy decided to leave to go do Brides of Destruction with Nikki. Sure. And for Motley. And uh, me and Phil, we decided, and I never really wavered. I was like, let's keep moving on. I was always trying to talk the classic members into st staying Chuck. I mm -hmm. always thought like I had a great thing going. We had a great catalog. We could tour all the time. We could do a lot of stuff. And we had a great name all over the world. And so me and Phil decided to go on from 2002 on to 2016. But in 2008, I, or 2006, seven, right in there, Brides didn't take off. Brides of Destruction didn't take off. And a couple of other things Tracy had tried to do didn't take off. So he decided to start a second LA Guns. That's when it really started, the two LA Guns. It started in about 2007, and Phil and I, we're kind of irked at the time because we were moving on. We had recorded albums. We were in the studio with Andy Johns doing albums. And when Tracy decided to start that second L.A. Guns with a, a bunch of cast of characters, too. I mean, he had a bunch of singers come in and out. And that was really when I had to start dealing with knowing there were going to be two bands because both of us own the name. Tracy and I own the name. We were partners. Are you 50 per 50, 50 partners on the name? So yes, Phil's not are. even a partner in the name. 
No, it was me and okay. Tracy because Tracy and I had continued on with the band. And you and copyrighted it or something? or, or how, yeah, okay. And we trademarked the, okay. the Trademark. name together. And we were partners, me mm. and Tracy. And uh, and really close, too. And uh, we were totally uh, shoulder to shoulder on everything. But, you know, in 2007, when he started that second L.A. Guns, while me and Phil were out as L.A. Guns, that's when I had to start dealing with it and knowing that there's not much I can do. I just have to deal with it. And so Tracy did that up till 2012. Me and Phil are still recording with Andy Johns. We did four albums with them. Mm-hmm. And that's when Tracy decided he didn't want to do his LA Guns anymore. And yeah. He was going to do something different. Sure. And, you know, me and Phil continued on for another four more years until Phil decided he was going to do some shows with Tracy. That's all he said to me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do some shows. And I was like, I knew the two guys didn't really get along, Chuck. Hmm. They never really did. And the other classic members know this too. The two guys, though, they never really got along. They put up with each other. And that was good enough. If you could put up with each other, you know, you just deal with it. Why didn't they get along, though? What was the issue? There was always an issue. And we couldn't really figure it out. Kelly hmm. Nichols, Mick Cripps, and myself, we just knew that they did not really get along there were they, they, it, it, there was something there in between them that we could not figure out, and they, and we just never were able to figure it out. But we knew it was there. So when Phil decided to do shows with Tracy, it came out of the blue. I was like, hmm. really, you know? And so I had to accept it. And they were just going to do shows, and I was going to continue on with LA Guns. I sure. was going to do what I had always done, just keep moving forward. And Phil laid it down like he was just going to do about five, six months of shows with Tracy and then come back and do all our guns with me. Mm. But that's not really what happened. Sure. And Kelly came in and this is where we're at. Right. So did you ever, was there ever a thought with a, you know, when in 2016, at that point, when you're splitting it off uh, to changing the name or differentiating it, differentiating it from the other version, like call it Steve Riley's LA guns or the LA guns or the new LA guns, or, or maybe just going a different route altogether and calling it Hollywood guns or LA bands guns or, you know, something totally different. Cause it just seems confusing. Like even with Spotify, I'm listening to your new album, which is great by the way. And we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but you know, it's confusing on the new album because you've got your version and Tracy's version. They're on the same Spotify. So it's like a little bit confusing for fans, I think sometimes, right? Well, yeah. And you know, I think people have to remember when these two started doing shows together in 2017, they went out as Tracy Guns and Phil Lewis. They didn't go out as LA Guns. Sure. They made that decision right around down the line that they wanted to call it LA Guns again and stay together. So I continued L.A. Guns on while these guys were doing Tracy Guns and Phil Lewis shows. Mm-hmm. They were not calling themselves L.A. Guns at all for a while. And then they decided down the line to call it L.A. Guns. So I never really considered calling it anything different because I was continuing it on with the same process that I had always continued on. I know it's confusing. It's something I wish that wasn't happening, mm-hmm. but it's also something that I don't think I really created. I was just moving on. They were, they were, the classic members were leaving and coming and leaving and coming. And I was staying straight and keeping the band going, getting record deals for the band, getting management, pretty much setting up everything. I was doing all the business from 87 to now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
it's not something I really wanted to do, but I knew that I had to do it. Nobody else really wanted to do it. So I've always done the business with me, and I just continued on. These guys were doing shows as Tracy and Phil, and, you know, I never really wavered from L.A. Guns because Phil just left again, but he wasn't breaking up the band. He said, I'll be back. So I was continuing on. I got Kelly in, and I continued on as L.A. Guns. It is confusing. What we're trying to do on our end is whatever we do, we're putting our names underneath what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Kelly does all of the artwork. He's putting Steve Riley, Kelly Nichols, Kurt Follett, Scott Griffin on everything we do. We're trying to make it as clear as possible, but it's also something that I feel really connected to, and I'm not just going to walk away from L.A. Guns because a classic member has left. I'm one of the classic members, and I haven't left, and I'm, I, I, I've always been making the band go. So I really never wavered from that okay. at all. So after you split off with Phil and Tracy, um, those guys have slung some mud your way. Uh, they've posted memes. They've said some mean comments in the press. I know you said you won't sling mud back, and I haven't seen you do that. Um, but you have to you have to have seen some of these the things that these guys have said. Now, obviously, there are fans slinging mud and press saying comments, too. Uh, but Phil and Tracy, I mean, they were your bandmates for many. I mean, Phil longer than Tracy, but Tracy, too. Does it hurt you to hear those things? And if not, how do you not let that stuff bother you? You can't let it bother you. If you have that kind of a thin skin, you won't last in this business. Hmm. Of course, these are former partners and bandmates of mine, co-songwriters. We've done so much together. For them to say anything like, Kelly can't play bass. Steve can't play drums. They 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 can't write. Well, Kelly wrote Ballad of Jane. He wrote our biggest hit. Mm-hmm. Me and Kelly played rhythm section on everything and co-wrote everything from the early years. The five of us co-wrote everything. We're really connected to this band. We know what our worth was in the band. We know what we bring to the table. And we know how good we are as a rhythm section, too. Kelly, like I said, wrote the biggest hit that we ever had. He brought that gist of a song in Ballad of Jane. We finished it in the studio, but that's one of Kelly's songs. And so to say that we can't play our instruments, to me, I think I have a lot more faith in the fans to know that that sounds foolish Mm -hmm. to them. I don't think that I would get all the gigs and all the bands I've been in if I couldn't play drums. It's just ridiculous. You know, how could I play all the double kick drums that Blackie wanted me to play in Wasp, the double kick drums in Keel, all of the early stuff from LA Guns, if I couldn't play drums. And the same with Kelly, if he couldn't play bass. So to say childish things like that, Kelly, we're not going to even go there. Yeah. We're not going to try to sling it back and say, yeah, but they can't play too. We wouldn't even think of saying something mm-hmm. like that because we have a lot of respect for those guys. Sure. And I think they do too, but they get carried away. Sure. And you, yeah, you said like if you did get every reunite, you don't want to look back and and say that you said a bunch of stuff. Um, so one more thing before I want to get into uh, the Renegades album and, uh, and your uh, new version of LA Guns. But one more thing, did you see the latest news that Phil uh, recently said Vince Neil's a total hack who couldn't sing his own songs and murdered Razzle? Terrible, Chuck. That is uh, such a bad thing to do in this business. You're talking about one of the biggest fans in the world, one of the most iconic hard rock metal bands in the world. 
I have nothing but respect. I know those guys. Mm-hmm. And I have nothing but respect for Motley Crue. All the way through. It doesn't matter what they did, how they did it, when they did it. I have so much respect for those guys for what they did. They're immense in this scene. They're iconic. And to jump into a fray like that and for no reason and say something like that, it's just another ridiculous thing to do. It's only going to work against you. They mm-hmm. have millions of fans that love them. So if you're going to say something like that about Vince, who's a great guy, he's perfect for Motley Crue. He isn't Paul Rogers. He never pretended to be Paul Rogers. He is great for Motley, perfect for Motley. His voice is perfect for them. To say something bad about Vince is just uncalled for. I don't know why he would do that if it's just to try to get attention or to try to get press. It's not good press. It's only going to work against you. I never believed in saying anything bad about anybody in this business, even if it's somebody that isn't a favorite of mine. Yeah, I just wouldn't do that. I wouldn't right. go there. That's smart, though, because you've lasted. You've obviously had a long career. So let's talk about now. You're putting together, you know, a different version of LA Guns. Now this is interesting. I had Michael Grant on. You know, he was in uh, he was in both versions of LA Guns, and he's this is another reason I want to interview with you. He said that he goes, yeah. Uh, Steve Riley called me and he goes, I didn't even answer the phone because I know how convincing he can be. <laughs> so that's pretty, that's like a compliment though. Like, and that's another reason I was like, oh, I got to talk to this guy. Like, so were there other musicians that you reached out to that maybe didn't answer their phone or turned you down? Yeah. You know, when I first was offered to do the M3 show and I actually got offered to do it in 2018 and I turned it down. I was actually working on a bunch of other stuff. And I got called from the promoter of M3 to see if I wanted to put an LA Guns together, a, a, a lineup to just do the show. Mm-hmm. He said fans would love to hear the material and Phil and Tracy don't want to do it. And I said, no, I go, I don't really want to do that right now. I said, and so he called me in 2019 too. And he mm. said, you know, would you want to do M3? He said, again, I want to tell you the fans just want to hear LA Guns songs. And so what I, I approached that as I, I had Kelly Nichols with me. I said, Kel, let's do this. Let's just check it out and go have fun. We'll bring a, a guitar player and singer with us. And, and Scotty Griffin came into the fold because we had already known him. He was with sure. the band for a number of years as the bass player. And he's a really a lead guitar player. So I, I said, Scotty, why don't you play lead? And then I was looking for a singer. Somebody in Vegas told me, check out Kurt Froelich. And I did. So we didn't have to go to an audition process with anybody in this lineup that's playing with me and Kelly Nichols. We found Kurt right away. And he was the guy that we liked. And Scotty was a no-brainer. We went into M3 thinking, let's go have fun. And we'll do this show, see what happens. And, you know, no big expectations. Let's see what goes on. And we did the show. It went over so good. And the reviews were so good. Somebody had filmed the whole thing, put it up on the internet. We saw the feedback. From that, we got New Breed Management out here in LA. They were primary wave. They're a huge management company. And Eric Baker and Bobby Collin. And they wanted to sign us right away as to a management deal. Hmm. We went with them. They brought us to Golden Robot Records. Things snowballed so quick from the M3 show. We didn't even know it was going to happen. There was no master plan. 
It wasn't like, okay, we're going to do this and then go do that. It just happened. We got management. They brought us to Golden Robot Records. Golden Robot watched the show. They loved it. And they said, yes, let's do a record with you guys. And four months later, we're in the studio recording Renegades. So it happened so fast. Yeah. We, we, you know? Did you reach out to Mick Cripps to try to see if he wanted to come in? Yeah, your initial question was, when me and Kelly decided to do this, I had reached out to Jizzy Pearl to see if he wanted to sing. Okay. I had reached out to uh, uh, Michael Grant, and Michael was already... I didn't realize what he had gone through with Phil yeah. and Trace. They let him down big time. They dropped him like a bomb. And Michael's a good guy. And yeah. And he's a brilliant dropped. guitar and, and songwriter and singer. His new album is amazing. If you've heard, if you yeah, haven't heard totally. it. And he's a good guy. And I, they dropped him and I didn't even realize that, but that's probably why he didn't take my call. He probably knew I was going to be persuasive too and say, come on, Mike, do this. <laughs> but, um, he was probably already still hurt from what happened with him and Trace and Phil. Because yeah. from what I understand now, they really hurt him and just let him go. And he was making an effort to make that work with them. And I also reached out to Stacey Blades, who had done a bunch of albums yeah. with us. And he was doing something else, too. So I had reached out to a number of people, and uh, they all didn't want to do it. Mm. And now looking back, I love all those guys. And I wish them nothing but the best, but I'm so glad with the way this happened and Kelly, right. Scotty and Kurt fell into place. It Cause really you said the chemistry is really good. Yes. Yeah. Totally is. And so, and you said the new album, I like this. You say it's kind of more of a promotional item to show that the band is fresh. Like you're not really thinking that you're going to sell a lot of copies or license a lot of this music, but it's kind of a promotional item to promote the band. Yeah, and I felt that way years ago. I felt this way, like starting almost like in the early 2000s, Chuck. I always felt like I knew when the record stores shut yeah. and the big machinery was shutting down, radio and MTV were gone. I knew that when you do an album now, you're not looking at doing major sales. It really is turning into a promotional item for touring, mm-hmm. since we're a classic rock band, we are touring more than recording. So a recording is really, you know, you're hoping that you sell a lot of copies, but you're not banking on it because of the situation with radio and MTV and record stores. So you're really using it as a promotional item. And I always felt that any band, no matter how old they are in, in stature, like if you're a 25-year-old band, 30-year-old band, to record is such a great thing for your soul as a musician. To create new music is something good for yourself anyways, and you're really doing it so you're being creative still. But that product is turning into a promotional item for touring sure and getting the band out there on nice tours. But you are getting a lot of downloads on Spotify and, and YouTube and stuff. And I heard the album and I'm just to be honest, I mean, I, I really like it. I think it's good that the, the single crawl is really great. It's really catchy. I've been listening to all the songs. Why ask why? And a well oiled machine, just classic LA guns, rockin' songs. Um, you can't walk away as the ballad. And then wood it, that almost sounds kind of like a, an Allison chains kind of jar flies type acoustic thing. Was that on purpose? You know, you know, it, it, we're all four of us, right? 
So when we started the Pete Production for Renegades, we had started it because we all live all over the country. The Kurtz in Florida, uh, Scotty's in Vegas, I'm in LA, Kelly's in New York. So we knew that with the tight budget, it was going to be very difficult to get everybody together to do the old pre-production, where, whereas it was going to be sure. us in the same city, meeting up the next day at the studio and writing songs together. So we started the pre-production by sharing files over the internet and sharing ideas on what we could do with the songs. We had all been sitting on a lot of songs. We, I, I wrote You Can't Walk Away uh, in the 80s. And oh, really? For some reason, it didn't get recorded. Okay. So, you know, we had been sitting on a lot of material and mm. exchanging it. And Kurt is a great singer-songwriter, guitarist. He had a lot of material. When we had started exchanging files, Wood came in towards the end of us exchanging these files. And he brought that song in and we were like, whoa, this song is amazing. And it was pretty much completed. We did some tinkering and some production on it in the studio, but I knew this was a great album track. I don't know because of the length of it, if it could be a single, mm-hmm. but I just knew that it was a great song and it has a great identity to it. And that's all Kurt Foley. Yeah. That's well, the whole album is great. And there's not a bad song. There's 10 really good songs. Um, now I know uh, Kelly, he sang on nothing better to do on in a vicious cycle. I know you weren't on that album, but would so would he ever, now that he's back in the band, would he ever sing that live or he didn't sing on this album? Did he? No, he did. He, what he did, but what we made him sing it at the M3 show. Oh, you check that M3 show out. He's singing nothing better okay. to do. It's in the set. That's awesome. He, yeah. He was, he was reluctant to do it. And we said, no, Kelly, you got to do this. People really like you singing this song. Yeah. Okay. I love that song. I, yeah, thought, I always too. felt like that should have been a bigger hit. I know it was like, I think it was the timing. Cause I feel like if you release that in like 90 or 91, I feel like that would have been at least been a rock, uh, uh, you know, rock radio hit. I, I don't know. I agree. I, I thought I it was great. Now, so you, I heard you say that um, in 2012, when you guys did the Hollywood Forever album, you tried to get Phil, or sorry, uh, Kelly back in the band at that point, and Phil shot it down. Do you know why he shot bringing Kelly back at that point? I don't know why, because when Kelly expressed to me, hey, Riley, I'm really ready to jump back into yeah. the brain. And I was like, Kelly, I love the idea. I go, listen, why don't you... Because I knew Scotty could play guitar. Mm-hmm. So Scotty could play rhythm guitar or, or, or sure. double lead with, with Stacey Blake. And so I knew that Scotty wouldn't be pushed out of the band, that he could move over to guitar. So I was totally into it. We even had Kelly fly out. We flew him out to L.A. to sing background and play bass on one of the songs on Hollywood Forever. Mm. Just so he could be involved with us and work with Andy Johns. And I was all for him and to join in and getting back with us. And I don't know, Chuck, I don't know why Phil shot it down. He didn't want to do it. And, you know, I guess before I had gotten Kelly back with me, Phil and Tracy had approached him to see if he wanted to help write some songs on one of their albums that they did together in these last few years. And when they sent Kelly the material to look at and listen to Kelly said, listen, I think that we could even do better than this. You know, it was very, very diplomatic about it. He mm-hmm. said, I think that we could really do better. And that offended Phil 
so bad that he attacked wow. Kelly in the press. And this is before I got Kelly back. And so he has a problem with Kelly. He has a problem with people, I guess. I don't know oh. where he comes from on that because Kelly is the coolest guy. He's such a great bass player and songwriter. He's a great artist. He does all the artwork for what wherever you see for LA Guns, yeah. me and Kelly. And he's just a great guy. I don't know why anybody mm. would have a problem with him. But Phil really took offensive that mm. Kelly said, hey, I think that we could even do better. It was mm. very diplomatic, and that offended him so bad that he attacked him in the press. And then by the time I called Kelly, he said, yeah, did you see Ke uh, me get attacked in the press by Phil? And I really didn't see it because I don't read a lot on the uh, Internet. Sure. But he told me about it, and it was just unfortunate. Another Vince Neil type of thing. It was just mm -hmm. uncalled for. It's not needed. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your, uh, besides your music career, you have a, uh, an acting career. You were in 1998, you were in some, you had a small role in a movie called Amazon Warrior. Is it true you have a role in an upcoming horror movie called Rightful? Yes. And you have some songs in the movie as well? I, I'm sorry? You have some songs in the movie too, yes. right? That's exactly how it started. The, the writer producer is a friend of mine and he said, do you have some material that you'd like to place in this new gothic horror movie that I'm doing. And I presented some songs. They ended up choosing two of the songs. And I was happy with that. But when they said, would you like to read for a part? I was taken back. I, I was like, because I, I really, you know, I'm not an actor. And I, I, I was taken back. And I said, yes, I'd love to read for a part. <laughs> and so I read for a part. And I got it. They gave it to me. They flew me to New Orleans to shoot my couple of scenes that I didn't even know if we we're going to make it. Mm. They did. They lasted. And they, oh, they cool. Didn't get cut. And so um, I got a couple of songs in Rightful and I got a couple of scenes in Rightful. It was a great experience in working with them and him and the director. And uh, they just got distribution. And so it's kind of cool. Cool. Yeah. And then are you, is it true you're working on a documentary that's about singers from the grunge era that have died? Like there was nine singers and who are the Kurt Cobain, Scott Whelan, Lane Staley, Chris Cornell, I'd say Andrew Wood from Mother Love Bone. Who else am I missing? Yeah, you know, you, you, the, the, uh, there's like nine of them. And I have the whole thing together. And there's nine huge singers. The story is such an amazing story, Chuck, that if you look at any decade from 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, there are still all the big singers from the 60s alive, from the 70s and the 80s. This 90s period of grunge and 90s music, it's not all grunge, mm -hmm. but it's, it's an amazing story how that generation from the 90s, they lost their voice. They lost their voices from these bands, these great bands that were together and great singers, and they all died for one thing or another, whether it was suicide, overdose, or what have you. It's just an amazing story. And I started working on it right away. As soon as Phil started doing those shows, those shows with Tracy, I started working on this doc because I had the idea for a while. And uh, just uh, it, it, I, I got consumed by it, too. And the people from Rightful now, the movie, they're working with me on it. And I'm going to cool. figure out exactly how I want to do this. We might do it in six parts 
We might do it as one whole thing, but we're figuring out how to do it. But I have it all laid out. I have all okay. of the interviews with the people that were involved with these people. Oh. And I'm going to pursue it and maybe finish it next year. Oh, that's awesome. I look forward to that. And then, um, so what, what else does the future hold? Like you've said, you know, despite all this talk about LA Guns and stuff, you said you'd never say never in reuniting with the full LA Guns classic lineup. What about the classic uh, Wasp lineup? Is there any talk? You've, you've never reunited with them, right? Since the 80s. No, you know, it's funny because Randy Piper and I got invited to go to Las Vegas to sit in with the Sin City Sinners. Mm-hmm. They were, they're a local band that do cover tunes and Brent Muscat from Fast and Pussycat was in it. And he would call and get people from L.A. bands to come out and sit in with them. He called me and said, I got Randy Piper on, too. Do you want to fly? We'll fly to Las Vegas put you up at a hotel and we jam some wasp songs. Well, when I, that happened, me and Randy reconnected and we were always friends, but we were kind of separated. We weren't in total touch. He said to me, the 30th anniversary of wasp is coming up. Would you be interested in doing a 30th anniversary little small tour with the original lineup? I said, Randy, of course I am. I'm always in something like that. And uh, I didn't realize he hadn't talked to Chris Holmes or Blackie oh. about it, just me. <laughs> oh, okay. So I told him I was totally in, uh, into it, but I don't think Blackie was into oh. getting back together with it. And I don't think Chris was because they had a really bad falling out. And But I'm always into something like that. I mean, if Blackie called me and said, let's go do a 20-day uh, tour with for the anniversary of Wasp, I would have been right on it. I would have done it. Okay, that's awesome. Um, and then you guys, like, like I said, the Renegade album is out for sale. And I, and I heard the uh, the vinyl of that is selling out. Do you have um, other promotional items for the band? I, and I don't know. This is like I don't know why LA Guns has been in the news so much lately. But uh, there was a story about how the other LA Guns was selling a LA Guns uh, drum head that was autographed by the band for $495, but it, it doesn't even have the original drummer. Like, And some fans thought that was a little steep, according to the story. I'm just reading off i'm not having an opinion on that i'm just reading off the story um do you feel like that's a little like how much would you uh, charge for a signed drum head from steve riley la guns oh i don't think i charge that much okay. no way <laughs> i don't think i charge that much okay. it's a little steep and uh you know it's a little hard on the fans too to say you want to pay 500 dollars for a drum head i i i mean i sell drum head sign a I, I stick sign but they're for very little. They're on our website. Okay. We've got laguns.net, and it's got how to order the Renegades album up there because it's very difficult for fans to find out even where to get the album right now. Mm-hmm. So laguns.net is where me and Kelly Nichols are running LA Guns out of, and you can find out how to order Renegades there. There's a bunch of great merchandise and some fun videos, and it has our tour dates that we're going to do in 2021. But, you oh. know, I, I tell you what, we are... We're like every other band, you know, we have the t-shirts, the patches and all of that stuff that you could buy, but it's not steep prices and we're not trying to gouge anybody and, you know, you got to keep it reasonable. Mm-hmm. And I think that Golden Robot Records, they did a great job. They put some bundles together. Oh, cool. You could buy the album, the t-shirt, the patch, everything's cut together in different color LPs. So okay. Which we're, we're trying our hardest to make it easy for fans to get it and sure. affordable. And then, so you said there is tour dates set up for 2021. Are, are you coming down the Southwest at all? I'm in Phoenix. Are you any, anywhere near Phoenix or Vegas or anything like that? Oh, no, totally, man. Yeah, we have a lot of stuff. 
what Kerry and I are going to do is we're not going to, what we're not going to do is the 200 to 250 shows a day. We don't want to do that anymore. I just finished doing that for like 20 years. It's a grueling, grueling schedule. It's not only you going on at 1230 in the morning, you're staying at a kind of a low down hotel or motel. Sure. You're playing on rented gear. That's not really up to par. I don't really want to do that anymore. So Kerry and I, we want the band. We're going to do like 40 to 50 shows in the States. They're going to be festivals, fairs, casinos, and then the odd satellite show that might go with one of those shows. Okay. But we will definitely be, and nothing got canceled out of 2020. It all got postponed into 2021. Okay. So we got a full schedule that starts up in March. Okay, great. Well, I'll definitely check that out. Hopefully see you guys soon. And then um, I'd like to end each episode uh, with promoting a, a charity of the guest choice. I, I don't know if your management told you, is there a, a charity that you work with that you want to give a quick shout out to? Yeah, it's City of Hope here in LA. Okay. And, uh, and both my management and I are totally behind that. And it, it's a great charity. What is it? What is City of, what is it? It's a, it's, a, it's a thing that works with the hospitals and children and all of that. Oh. And it helps them out with funds. And it's just a really good situation to help some of these uh, lower people that the, the people that don't have money mm-hmm. and they just can't afford stuff. And it's just a good little That's charity. awesome. Okay. I'll put the link in the notes and then, um, and obviously your social media as well. Um, Steve, you've had an amazing career this far. I, I look forward to seeing where you uh, keep going and uh, we'll definitely uh, look to see you on a show, hopefully once concerts are legal again. So hopefully that works. Anything else you want to promote or, I tell you what, Bo, I just want people to go to LAGuns.net. Okay. You can find out anything that we're doing, especially Perfect. with those shows that are coming up. And I want to thank you for your support. You're a good guy, brother. And be yeah. safe too out there. You too. Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. You're a great guy. Thank you. Okay, Thanks bye-bye. So Steve Riley is the man. He is the drummer for LA Guns. There are two versions of the band. So to differentiate between the other version, you're going to want to head over to LAGuns.net. And check out everything they have there. All the links are there. You can buy the album. Or, of course, you can listen to it on Spotify. Uh, If you enjoyed this episode of my show, check out some of the other interviews I've done. Uh, If you subscribe to the show, you'll never miss any future episodes. If you want to support the show, you can follow me on social media or share any episodes that you liked on social media. And if you really want to go all out, you can write a review on iTunes because that helps the algorithm so people can find the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, shoot for the moon.